welcome to another episode of the Unfinished Cubby podcast. With me today is Bernardo Castrop, who is um, a philosopher. And um, uh, Bernardo, thank you so much for joining today. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to let you know, actually, I've been following your work for years. I first um, came across it, I'm not sure how long ago, but it was a talk you did at SciFest, I think in 2014. Oh, uh, 2016. Okay. Uh, psychedelic festival. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, 2016. Yeah. 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 So that's my first introduction and still kind of one of my favorite videos for explaining uh, your philosophy. Um, I, uh, from, uh, you know, as a young, young person, as a young child, I had the same intuition that um, consciousness just seems very important. Like the, 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 idea that it was um, emergent or you know not real um, was just didn't didn't, didn't compute didn't compute at all at all and um, so I, I sort of yeah the, the the notion that consciousness is more primary than um, matter like I, that's always felt right to me and the hearing you articulate it um, it just it was like a relief almost, you know, it, it yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I love listening to your talks. I, um, I used to for years, are you familiar with the work of Alan Watts at all? Yeah. 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 So I've read a couple of his books and listened to a couple of his audio uh, lectures. Yeah. yeah. I, for years. Yeah. So he's, you know, a, a Buddhist and Taoist philosophy brought to the West and, for years, I enjoyed listening to those of an evening because that philosophy and it, kind of a, an attitude that life is a game and, and should be treated playfully. Like I, I found that really helpful. It helped me integrate um, or, or hearing a lot and integrating it gave me, a, gave life a different feel. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And I get that from your philosophy as well. So I, I wanted to just let you know that it's um, something that's really important in my life. Um, and I guess- Glad to hear it. Thanks yeah. for letting me know. So I should probably ask you some questions. I, I, I wonder, is that true for you? Um, what I want to ask is, does your philosophy um, that consciousness is primary, that, that um, everything is something of universal mind, which is like a stream and that we're, whirlpools in that stream does that give you a different feeling about life and that sort of came to you what, what is what totally is reality different. feel like to you totally different although not necessarily playful i mean uh, the archetype of the trickster is not doesn't express itself very much through me i'm more of an apollonian tradition as opposed to dionysian tradition um it's just yeah what wants to come through the uh, to the world through me uh, but I certainly have a completely different relationship with myself, with life, with uh, my fellow human beings, since uh, this idea of analytic idealism really sunk in. I mean, it's no longer just a conceptual story in my mind. It's, it is the idea that informs my life at a, my life at a very deep level and, uh, and surely changes everything if I compare to the you know, zombie-like uh, endorsement of 
mainstream physicalism that uh, that I had in my early years, my early 20s, I was at CERN doing hardcore uh, um, research. And uh, without thinking it through, I was a physicalist because that's what everybody around me was. And mm. we didn't talk about it. It was just like, yeah, the, the matter, you know, fields, energy, quantum fields, that's what, that's what there is. Um, and I still remember how my relationship with myself and the world was back then and how it is now. And there is now a whole new dimension of depth, of meaning, of mystery, uh, of significance uh, that wasn't there before. Yeah, fantastic. I'm, I'm not surprised and I'm, and I'm glad to hear that. Um, do you think the, that, that philosophy, that attitude is, is becoming more mainstream now? Yeah, idealism. It? Yeah. I think there is certainly a lot more opening to it than there was before. Until very short time ago, anybody who would hint at this idea of a cosmic mind, even if we would use very technical and descriptive words, like uh, I used to talk about a spatially unbound field of phenomenal subjectivity. And like, nice. but then people would compute that. What does it mean? Oh, cosmic consciousness. Ah, forget about that. It's <laughs> new age, woo woo nonsense. So uh, that, that kind of knee jerk reaction is still prevalent, but it used to be more prevalent 15 years ago, even 10 maybe. Um, now there is more opening, well, openness. Now there is a recognition that a substantial, substantial, rational and empirical case can be made for it. Mm. Uh, you may not necessarily agree with it, but there is open, open, openness now in, in academia, in the scientific media uh, uh, to consider this uh, as a valid hypothesis to be put on the table. I mean, Scientific American over the past four years has published 12 essays from me and each single one of them, in each one of them, I lambast uh, mainstream physicalism and I, and I say idealism is the way to go. 12 of them, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Not a chance. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I also, semi-recently I watched your video um, defending your PhD, actually. Um, and yeah, no, I, I love that you the philosophy phd i presumably yeah uh, yes yes the philosophy PhD. not a very there is another very old video of my defending my my computer science phd but i, I presume that's not what you no, no 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 i haven't seen that one um but yeah no and uh it's you 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 make a case that's very hard to argue with too and you and, and you speak very scientifically and um logically um I've been looking at the, uh, listening to a lot of stuff um, by Donald Hoffman lately. Are you familiar with? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I know yeah. Don. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, you know him personally. Yep. There you go. Yeah. We have had many discussions that I think a lot of people would have liked to be a fly on the wall. I <laughs> during, totally, during absolutely. Discussions. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't seen a conversation with the two of you online, but I've imagined mm. what one might be like there are at least one or two publicly available maybe even three but we have had we've had more than than what's uh, publicly available so um i'll attempt a really quick lay explanation of his what actually can i ask you to do that can you um sure and and sure yeah look when when 
we talk about you know cosmic mind and uh, uh, pe people tend to associate these things with another abstract realm or some other dimension or you know something far away so far away that it's not even in space or time anymore some other other thing very abstract um, and we forget that uh, what we mean by that is exactly the world where we are in right now. It just doesn't look like the physical world. And the, the, the explanation for that, um, that, there are different metaphors. Uh, Donald Hoffman uses the, the virtual reality headset metaphor. I prefer the dashboard metaphor, so we'll use that one. But it's, it's the same idea that he puts forward. Um, evolution has not equipped us with a transparent window to see the world as it is in and of itself. Why? There is a thermodynamic argument. If evolution would have done that, then there would be no upper bound to the dispersion of our inner perceptual states. And we would basically boil up into an entropic soup. We would dissolve. <laughs> That's the idea. Um, so our perceptual states cannot mirror the world as it really is. They have to be encoded. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, and that's the work of Don Hoffman and his team, um, they have managed to prove not only through uh, modeling, but through a mathematical theorem, that evolution would drive us swiftly to extinction if we had this transparent window to see the world as it really is. That's not what evolution would have done. What evolution has done is to give us a dashboard of instruments, dials that provide us accurate information about the world, like the dials of an airplane, of the instrument panel of an airplane. And pilots, we know, can fly by instruments. They don't need to see actually what's outside. The instruments give them everything they need to know to fly safely. So that's what evolution did. It has given us the instruments, but it has not given us a transparent windshield. We cannot see the world as it really is. We are locked up, cooped up. Uh, in, uh, behind this instrument panel. And that instrument panel is the physical world, is what we call the physical world. The physical world with time and spatial extension and objects with uh, uh, defined boundaries, position and speed. These are the dials on the dashboard. This is not the world as it actually is in and of itself. And today we can say with a very, very high degree of confidence, if not absolute conf confidence, that this is what's going on. The problem is that uh, we think that the physical world is the world as it is in itself. <laughs> it's not. We have plenty of reasons to abandon uh, this fiction uh, today. Uh, the world as it really is in itself, whatever it is, it is by definition not physical. Because what we call physical is by definition the dashboard. And the world is not the dashboard. If you're flying a plane and there is a, a storm outside, clouds, lightning, thunder, and you see uh, information on your dashboard, that dashboard doesn't look like the clouds, wind and thunder and rain that's going on outside. You should take the dashboard seriously, but not literally, as Don Hoffman says. Cool, thank you. I haven't actually heard the, the, the dashboard um, analogy, um, but that's a, another good one. Multiple analogies help. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, certainly what he is saying um, seems very um, in alignment with what you're saying. It's a, a different way of describing it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I was, I was just curious as to what, um, what your thoughts were there. And, and I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, uh, 
bear with me, Bernardo. I, I prepared yeah, no a, a few questions. Um, <laughs> look, one of them was, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you what it's like to be um, a celebrity philosopher. Is that... Um, oh, I don't think I qualify for that title. I'm afraid uh, you do. I am, at best, I am a minor celebrity, <laughs> at best. Um, I don't like it. Okay. Why is uh, that? It's not... Um, I don't know. Um, a lot of what I do in philosophy is not what I would choose in, in order to have the most fun and pleasure in my life. Um, it's what I must do. It's something that isn't, uh, it's not decided out of free will, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It, it, it simply must happen. And if I don't do it, if I don't do it, if I resist it, um, I feel sick uh, and I can be literally uh, sick. I become completely dysfunctional. Things really go completely haywire. So after all these years, I sort of, I made peace with this reality. So I, I don't fight it. This is what wants to go into the world, come into the world through me. Fine, I'm not going to resist that energy that builds up and wants to erupt through whatever I say. And I think it's the same for everybody. It's just that different people pay more or less attention to whether they are following the cues of nature, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. They are part of nature. They are not autonomous entities that can simply choose uh, what they are going to do in the world. We are part of a much larger natural context. Um, and if you are attuned to that, uh, you end up not resisting what nature wants to do through you. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people do resist and they end up making the choices that are best from the point of view of their ego, but they end up suffering from that. So being a minor of philosophy celebrity is not something I enjoy. I'll tell you why. Um, there are many reasons, but um, it's often contentious. And uh, I even have a name. I, I got... Um, I forgot what it is. Uh, some that there is a group of academic philosophers in the UK who consider me not obnoxious. There is another word, a less heavy word they use, but uh, something Troubles like the angry philosopher. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. A contentious angry philosopher. Sure, or sure. Uh, angry. But it's not the right word. I forgot what the word was that they used. They told me once um, because I. When I'm engaging in discussions, I am incredibly non-political. Um, I think if somebody would go about doing what I'm doing in the way I used to do things in business, you are always attuned to the psychological dynamics of the situation. You're always trying to make sure that you have enough allies on your side, that you, that you don't annoy a person you need in order to achieve your goal. You choose your battles, you choose your enemies, and you make concessions to make alliances. Um, I don't do that at all in philosophy. I used to do it in business. I, I, I could tell you, I would go as far as to say that uh, I almost mastered that skill uh, in business. But business for me was sort of new. Huh? Diplomacy is what you're talking about. Um, but a, a, a kind of diplomacy in which you have to make concessions to your own honesty. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and in philosophy, I don't do that. So it doesn't matter how important the person is that tells me, oh, I think this, this and that. If I disagree or just say bullshit, 
And let me tell you why it's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I often, I, I don't say, I wouldn't say I get in trouble because the world of philosophy is infinitely friendlier and less consequential in terms of the impact on your life than, than you know, your, your job or, your, or when you were in business. Uh, business competition you know, has a lot more widespread consequences if you, if you make the wrong moves. Uh, in philosophy, there is nothing, but, um, or very little for you personally as consequences of you know, annoying people. But um, if you ask me, is that how I am as a person? No. I'm not like that. Often if I have friends at home and they say something I disagree with, I know enough to not comment on it. I'm not going to say I agree, but I'm just going to go, ah, I see. I sure. see. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. But, uh, that's how I am. But uh, this philosophy business, I can't be like that because there, this energy comes and I've learned not to stop it. So I'll just tell people on their faces, doesn't matter how important and, and established and famous they are or how important their endorsement would be to me. If they say something I disagree with, I'll just say, bullshit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me explain why it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, cool. And, and so when you say, um, like, you, you, you must do that, you, you don't even make, you're not even talking about, like, an obligation or a rational, like, it's important that you, you, you just, it's, it, it wells up inside you. Spontaneous. And, it's spontaneous. Speak, I, can, I can make the decision, and I have made in the beginning many times, to not do it. Yeah. But it eats me alive the yeah. next day. Yeah. And, and it ends up being worse. So I figure, you know what, I, I will stop trying to make this premeditated plan about how to weave the politics of, of having my theory uh, uh, be heard. Yeah. I would just, I surrender completely to nature now, and you know, whatever is coming, <laughs> I would say. Now, it doesn't mean that my argument is not thought through. My argument is very thought through. I've thought this through for years before I even put it out for the first time and wrote my first book. But um, my behavior in defending that argument uh, is not political and it's, it tends to be largely spontaneous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. I, um, I'm not going to get this quote quite right, but I was talking with a friend recently and it's a biblical quote that is... Um, uh, what's inside you, if you um, let it out, then that's your salvation. And if, if you don't, then it's your health, something along those lines. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 I wouldn't go too far with this because otherwise you give free reign to your shadow and, and that will wreak havoc with others in your own life. So that's not what I mean. But within the boundaries of an intellectual debate, uh, in other words, I'm not going to stand up and go punch somebody in the face. I may have wanted to do that <laughs> once or twice, uh, but I'm, it's not going to go that far. Within the boundaries of an intellectual argument, I will call bullshit whenever I see it. Even if I turn out to be wrong, which I don't think has happened yet, at least I haven't realized it so far, um, I would just do that. And I don't fight that instinct anymore. It is what wants to express through me. So fine. <laughs> Awesome. And if I make less friends because of that, then so be it. Yeah, yeah. And look, is, is, this, is this your, um, like, is, is it, um, do you make an income now from, from speaking in this way? What, what, what's the shape of your life um, as far as that goes? So until last year, I was in the world of high-tech business. I was in that world for 25 years. 
Um, I started in it doing basically scientific research, um, scientific research at CERN, scientific research at Philips Research. Um, but you know, when you were young, you are in your 20s, you already had your first PhD. Um, when I was like 27, 28, I you know, had developed technology that was considered very promising and I didn't resist. We started a company, uh, which eventually was sold to Intel. Uh, we started a sort of microprocessor company, media processors. Uh, Silicon yeah. Hive was the name. It was sold to Intel. And, um, and then once you go through that, you know, you end up in corporate technology strategy, corporate strategy, because, you know, you already went through a startup that got sold. And even though you are young, that, that is perceived as very valuable experience. So I did technology strategy for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I, I left that world only last year. So until that. last right. year, philosophy was sort of my evening and weekend activity. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And now I, I have joined a foundation whose purpose is to promote idealism, the philosophy of idealism from a analytic scientific perspective. And I earn a salary from that foundation. So that's my sole source uh, of income now. But I, I am at a point where I, I don't really need rivers of money, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't have an ambition to, to have multiple houses or you know, a brand new car. I don't have this. For the life of me, I, I can't muster the desire for, for these things. I want to live in one safe, comfortable house and drive one safe car. I drive a 2013 car. And if you ask me, am I getting close to the point of buying a new one? Nowhere near that. My car is perfectly adequate. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what I'm doing now. Wow, I I didn't realize that. That I, I mean, I I knew of your background at CERN and in technology, but I had no idea that it's um, that only last year you you made that change. How does that feel? Feels great. Yeah, yeah, feels great. It was one of those things that it wasn't really my choice. It my choice was to resist it for a while. And it was making me sick. So what? once I sort of surrendered to that, I feel better. <laughs> there you go. And why, why were you resisting, do you think? You just didn't want to let go of... Yeah. 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 When your whole life is in a, in a world, the world of high technology, and you sort of know everybody, and everybody knows you, and you have nothing else to prove, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and um, you have a social life that is completely connected with that world you travel the world because of that um you feel that you you belong in a sort of family um it's very difficult to let go of what is such a big part of your life um but yeah do you feel have you lost um a lot of social ties then yes but it came together with the pandemic so it's difficult to separate sure. one from the other yeah yeah um, what's the name of the foundation that you're with now? Essentia Foundation. Essentia. Essentia, uh, E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A, foundation.org. And how did that come about? Uh, like who, that, that foundation, who started it? And... So I have a very good friend, Fred Matzer. Um, he's a Dutch uh, humanitarian. And a few other friends uh, that wanted to, to join up in this effort. Um, it was Fred's initiative. Fred founded Essentia Foundation to promote 
the philosophy of idealism, the notion that reality is fundamentally mental, not your mind alone, not my mind alone, but fundamentally mental uh, in essence. And um, he was trying to talk me into doing this for the longest time. And I resisted um, because, you know, the ego is attached to its own idea of what safety and comfort mean. And, and to me, that meant being in that web, in that world where I was, where I was established, where I, I was respected and everybody knew me. Um, so parting ways with that uh, was a, a big transition that uh, took a while for me to, to make. Eventually, I literally got sick and I made the transition. Yeah, right. yeah. So I was pretty sick and Fred came to me and said, okay, this is the time, isn't it? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's the time. <laughs> Um, and and so, what is uh, what's your what's your day job like now? What do you do? Are you, uh, is this uh, are you are you on clock right now? Is this kind of your role? Or no, no. Now there is no distinction anymore anymore between my yeah. work and my private life. It's all sort of and the pandemic contributed to this because now we are all the time at home as well. Uh, but it's one big flow now. I don't have anymore this concept of two separate lives because. My work is what nature wants to do through me anyway. So the fact that it's now my full-time job uh, gives me license to just completely surrender to the spontaneity of nature, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. I just do what, uh, what I'm supposed to do is what, happen, what wants to happen through me. So it's very easy now. So, but but you... there, there, there is a risk, uh, Chris. Uh, there are risks, risks involved in this. I, I'll tell you an example, a very recent example. Uh, until a few days ago, a few days ago, I ended a period of two weeks in which I worked literally day and night. I only stopped to go to the toilet, to eat, have a shower and sleep. I did nothing else for two weeks, way into the night, yeah. until three, four in the morning, every single day, compulsively, obsessively, only work. And um, towards the end, I was busted. I had eye ache like I'd never had before. Very funny moving headaches that would move around my head. I never had that before. Yeah. I couldn't focus. So I came to a point where physically my body was saying, no, 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 now you've got to stop. Mm. And I took a four hour long bath and I rested for two days. Yeah. So and it's tricky. For sure, for sure. That, um, that, that, like I, I usually I'm in a co-working space is where I'm talking to you from and the separation of a home and workspace um, can really help um, yeah, because that's, that's an easy trap to fall into, especially if you love what you do, um, I think. Um, and so what was that work? Were you writing? I was uh, uh, producing the um, uh, Essentia Foundation's uh, uh, online course on analytic idealism. Oh. Uh, and after all the work, all the editing, you know, we were left over with over six hours of well-produced edited course material. So you can imagine and how long it took me to go from zero to six edited hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was all the time recording, reviewing, re-recording, uh, editing, recording again, editing again, you know. Uh, even though I had help, uh, I was ultimately responsible for the content. And a lot of the editing has to do with the content. So there's a lot of people ready to help me, but. I, 
until I got to the point where it can help me, it was uh, a lot of work. Sure. A lot of work for quite a while. Yeah. Are, are you happy with what? With, with yeah, the, I'm very relieved. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. Um, Thanks. I'll, I'll need to check that out. Um, Bernardo, where do you live? I don't, I don't actually know that. I know I could Google that, but. I live in the south of the Netherlands. So oh. I, I live, I can bike down to Belgium. Yeah, right. Or if I go south, or I can bike to Germany if I go east. Um, so, so I'm sort of equidistant from Amsterdam, um, Antwerpen, and Dusseldorf. So very yeah, okay. central in the heart of Europe. If you look at a map, a photo of Europe at night, yeah. the, the area that's most lit up, that I live right in the middle. Yeah, the right. Okay. I, um, I spent a little bit of time in Holland a long time ago. Um, uh, I did a little bit of work in uh, Bergen on Zee in the north. Yeah, Bergen on Zee. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm just trying to remember. Actually, I spent a lot of time um, at a squat, which was just an incredible um, time in my life. And it was in the south near Appledorn. Appledorn is more in the middle, middle of okay. the country. All right. Um, okay. So yeah, but so somewhere around there. Um, I can't. I can't. Toge. It was called uh, just a little town. Uh, T E U G E. I don't know. Okay. T E what? Uh, T E U G E, I think. Teuge. Right. Teuge. Okay. Yeah. Teuge of Teuge. Yeah, well, I don't know anyway. I, I remember it as Teuge. Anyway, I loved um, I, I loved my time there. So you're Dutch. I am sort of, um, there are many components in me. I'm okay. ethically Portuguese-Danish, but I'm a Dutch citizen. It's the only passport I have. I see, I see. Okay, cool. So yes, I'm Dutch. If you ask me where, what's my home, mm -hmm. uh, uh, if, if somebody would ask me, you know, is your philosophy Portuguese, Danish, Dutch, uh, I would say no. It's, it's, this is philosophy from this ground, from this wet soil here. <laughs> it's Dutch philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool, cool. I, I, something a woman said to me when I was there and I, that always stuck with me. Um, uh, she said, uh, I can't remember even what the conversation was, but she said, we're only, we're a little country here. So it's really important that we all get along together because we, we share a small space. Um, in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the, the uh, polder mentality. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something Americans, for instance, will never understand uh, why we yeah. think like that. And it's basically survival. Yeah, yeah. yeah th there were a lot of really interesting differences because I worked there for a little bit and I remember um, coming into the office one day and I kind of sat down and just started working and someone that I was working with just said to me, in Holland, we greet people when we come into the office, something like this. <laughs> and just the, the, oh, blood, the, the bluntness of the Dutch is, and like at first I found it really confronting, but then um, look, I really, I really appreciate it. You, I, I feel like I, I always know where I stand with, with a Dutch person. I, yeah, it's difficult for me to really put myself in your place because yeah, it's what I take for granted. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, I think I understand. I think I understand how confrontational it can be because Dutch people, uh, they don't hold back. They, they don't beat around the bush, as, as you say in English. They, they really Hardly. don't beat around the bush. They, they, they just say it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and, and, and there, there has been a historical necessity to be like this, to just say it 
and then find a compromise. Because if yeah. we don't do that, if we start, if we go into civil war, what will happen is that the, the pumps will start, stop working and half the country will yeah. be <laughs> under the feet. So yeah. no, we, we, we can't afford that. So yeah. we have to, uh, we cannot let things accumulate until major confrontation. So what you see is that all the little frustrations, they are, they are being let out a little bit at a time. Mm. So it never builds up. Mm. It mm. never becomes you know, a major thing that energy is always being let out a little bit. Yes, it's, it's the opposite of the kind of British thing where you never, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. never say anything uh, impolite or that might um, And it, upset, you yeah. will see a lot of that in my behavior as a philosopher. Well, totally, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what, what you're <laughs> describing as being non-political is, is absolutely that. Yeah, this is, this is how it is. Yeah. Um, just having a look at my questions that I'd written down to ask you. Oh, this is one. Because um, I was talking to a friend, I was very excited that I was going to get to talk to you. And she said, um, because it was such a funny impulse for me too, I was listening to some interview that you did. And I'm just gonna, I just Googled you and got your email and sent it. And the next morning you, you'd said yes. What, um, why did you say yes to coming on my podcast? Just a, a random email on the internet and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now I looked up when you sent me a link probably to something. Okay. Yeah. Or I did a search. Um, I don't choose the interviews I give based on the popularity of the show. Yes. That's um, obviously. Because it's spontaneous. <laughs> and now yeah. I, it's not calculated. Um, there are many popular shows that I, I wouldn't accept to, to go. For instance, podcasts that are highly edited. Mm. It's not my thing. I, yeah. don't want, I want something that's spontaneous and people get, get a chance to see how the conversation actually uh, uh, unfolded. Um, so it's not based on that. Um, I just, you know, spontaneously, I feel like discussing uh, things and uh, I don't like to discuss in, the exactly this, in exactly the same way every time. So if I get an invitation from a podcast that looks like, oh, this is something different. I'm going to get different questions or you're going to have a different conversation. Then I tend to, to accept that. Although now I've been doing this so much and I've had a couple of bad experiences uh, that I, I, I'm being more selective now, especially when it comes to events. Uh, when it's a small podcast, and it, it hardly ever goes wrong because it's just two people, you know, it's, mm. uh, it, it, there aren't great forces around it, if you know what I mean. Um, but I, I, yeah, I tend to, I, I, I want to be more careful from now on about what I accept to do. Okay. I'm sorry to hear. Um, what, what are the... Happens. Are, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I'm, I'm really, really glad that, that you did. It's, um, it's such a buzz for me uh, to get to talk to you. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, no, because it really, uh, the... You, you are very much a celebrity to me. And the, this is the <laughs> first time in my life that I've just gone and, and reached out and gone and, and to feel connected to someone that is in celebrity status. It's, it's a really interesting thing as well. It's a, um, yeah, I, don't, I, I don't think I have that status, but uh, even if objectively that is the case, again, that's also part of the spontaneity of the situation. I would never regard myself as more than just one more person. I can't help 
I can't lie to myself, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. It's impossible to lie to myself. So yeah, I, I, I don't have, um, I have respect for myself, but I don't take myself that seriously, if you know what I mean. Uh, mm -hmm. I see some people around who seem to take themselves very seriously. Yeah. And I find that slightly bizarre. Um, but yeah, okay, it's their trip. Um, I do want to ask you about something. Um, and I know you've spoken about this before and uh, uh, yeah, I won't say what I think your answer might be, but I just, I, what's, what's your current thoughts? Um, what's the best way to articulate this? Just kind of around spirituality and, and the, like in speaking with you now and a number of things that you've said, um, I feel a sense from you, but I might be making the wrong connections that you do like, you know, you've spoken about feeling driven and a, and a, and a need to be what you are, something like that. Do you, um, is that connected then to an idea of a, let's say of universal consciousness having um, a, a drive or a purpose or a desire, or is it, you know, What's your kind of spiritual belief? Do you, do, you, do you feel that there's any reason to why we're here and what we're doing? I want to ask you that. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't think we can ever wrap our heads around that reason because we are monkeys evolved on planet Earth on a, on a corner of a typical galaxy of many gazillions of galaxies. Uh, it is ridiculous to expect that we have developed the cognitive system uh, that is required to have comprehension of all the salient aspects of nature. Of course, that's not the case. Um, look, if, if spirituality means that one feels subtly connected to something that is both transcendent, infinite, but also imminent uh, in the world around, then I am highly spiritual. But I don't use this word because I think the worst thing that has ever happened to spirituality is the word spirituality because it provides a conceptual opportunity to differentiate it from reality mm. like you have spirituality and you have reality and yeah they may overlap but essentially they are different that's the worst thing that has ever happened to spirituality so for me it's all nature it's not a distant realm but it's also not physical because the physical world is just a dashboard. It, imagine you're a pilot and you're inside the aluminum skin of the airplane and you don't have a transparent window, a glass window. All you have is the dashboard. Imagine that that pilot would then speak of the world right on the other side of the aluminum skin as the spiritual world. Mm. Would it be appropriate? It's not. It's not far away. It's just on the other side. It's just mm. behind the dashboard. Mm. The pilot is immersed in that world. It's his world. It's his reality. It is nature. So I think that's exactly what's happening to us. This spiritual world is just the world as it actually is. But we only have measurements of it through what we call the physical environment, which is a dashboard. So for me, spirituality is not something abstract. I don't, I don't call it spiritual. I call it natural. Mm -hmm. I call it nature. Uh, you heard me saying I don't fight uh, what nature wants to express through me. Mm. 
So I'm not saying I'm channeling. I find it so distasteful. I don't say, you know, there are spiritual masters and I'm the mouthpiece of the spiritual master. Come on, give me a break. What is this? It's just nature. And it is not physical because physicality is just an appearance of what's really going on. It's just the image on the dashboard of dials. And do you think we can and will get closer to getting a window? No. No? Not as living beings. No. Yeah, no, right. there, there, there are plenty of reasons why that cannot happen. It is impossible according to the second law of thermodynamics, according to what we understand of evolution by natural selection. It ain't going to happen. But I think life is a dissociative process in this universal mind. Um, and living bodies are what this dissociative process looks like. It's the appearance of the dissociative process on the dashboard of dials. Um, so death is the end of the dissociation. Death, the end of life, therefore, the end of the dissociation. When that dissociation ends, I think we will uh, automatically go to the world as it actually is in itself. Okay. Because the dashboard is, is, is an artifact of life, is an artifact of preserving the structure of the dissociation. When the dissociation ends and we basically decompose as, as physical bodies, because the body is the image of the dissociation, if it ends, the body ends, then we get to see what's behind the dashboard, which is the root of our being, is where we, where we come from, where we never left, actually. Okay, uh, yeah. So um, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry for that, if you know what I mean. I'm going to die anyway one day. Yeah, yeah. So why be in a hurry? It's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, but you feel, you feel very confident that, that there will be answers to, to the nature of nature and self after death. No. No? No. Conceptual answers? No. Okay. No. I think, uh, I think, uh, I think life is what the universe is doing in order to develop metacognition. Uh, Self-awareness would be the colloquial uh, way of putting it. Um, so I think a explicit metacognitive understanding of what's going on is only accumulated through life. So whatever answers you haven't developed in life, you're not going to develop okay. to develop afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, you may retain the insights you had, you most likely will. You will experience the world from the inside out as opposed from the outside in. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that will provide all the answers because, look, if the universe from its first person perspective already had all the answers, it would be doing exactly nothing. And there would be no supernovae explosions and black holes and galaxies and superclusters, none of and volcanic eruptions and moons and suns. Nothing would be happening. Um, so I don't think the answers are there anywhere. So, like all of all of this, all of being and and what we experience, would would you say is um, nature um, exploring and discovering itself? And yeah, 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 but not in a premeditated way, in a okay, sort of yeah. spontaneous, instinctive way. It will bump against the answers at some point. And what it's doing is an expression of some sort of discomfort, um, some lack of self-understanding or explicit self-awareness. Um, and look, even with 
people, you see how difficult it is for people to become really self-aware. Um, most of us go through life in a largely automatic mm -hmm. manner. Uh, we, we do not know that we have certain addictions. We do not know that we are repressing our shadow. Uh, we do not know what we are really feeling. We, not, we do not know what we want. We do not know where we are going or mm -hmm. why. We are sort of, sort of going through this largely automatically. So even you know, monkeys that uh, have developed uh, the ability to self-reflect after, after three and a half billion years of evolution on this planet, even these monkeys are largely not self-aware, let alone nature as it originally was more than three and a half billion years ago. So it, it's very difficult to develop self-awareness. And, uh, and at the universal level, I think we didn't even get to the point where we are you know, walking on our knees yet. Uh, it's very early in the game, very, very, very early in the game. Yeah, okay, cool. So um, what, what I'm hearing you say is that, um, first of all, self-awareness is something special that's being discovered, um, but um, we're almost, as human beings, little exploratory spikes of this phenomena of being self-aware. Um, but you do see it as something special that um, eventually um, integrates back into, say, universal yeah, consciousness. Yeah, I don't think there are any guarantees. I don't think there is a God that has already seen it all and know exactly what it's doing and where it's going. I don't think that's the game. Um, thank God it's not the game because otherwise our lives would be meaningless, right? If God already has all the answers, why do we have to suffer like this mm. to get to answers that God already has? I mean, it could only be a very cruel game if this were the case. Um, I don't think God has the answers to speak metaphorically. Um, it's learning the answers uh, through us. Um, but it, the process, I think, is largely instinctive. It's trial and error. Um, and hopefully one day we will bump more and more uh, against the answers, but I don't see any guarantee either. Mm -hmm. It's a meaningful process, but if you ask me, is there a guarantee that at the end we will get there and we'll come out of, of this you know, bloodbath that life on this planet is? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit stuck on the, where you said... Um... I said, do you think we'll ever have a window as human beings? And I, I think you said no. And, um, and there's a part of me that um, rebels against that. And I, I want to think that we can have um, better knowledge of what is. And I don't know, do you think through, say, meditation or psychedelics, there is... Um, um, access to, I like that metaphor of a window then rather than just the instruments. I think we can get the smell of it. I think we can get a sense and intuition of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you said a window, uh, what I understood was that we would have high resolution, clear view of what's really going on. I don't think that's the case. I don't think psychedelics do that either. Psychedelics, um, you know, the trickster is loose during a psychedelic trip it's very difficult to pin down what's reliable insight and what is you fooling yourself. Mm -hmm. Mind doing what it does, which is to deceive itself. That's mind's prime directive. Um, but I do think that um, psychedelics induce a reduction in the natural dissociation that life is. 
And we know uh, th th there is compelling evidence for that in that uh, we know now that all psychedelics operate by significantly reducing brain activity, brain metabolism. So while you're tripping out of your head, having the richest and most intense experience of your life, your brain's effectively gone to sleep. Mm. Um, so what this tells me is that the reduction in brain activity is what a reduction in, dissociative, in, in, in dissociation looks like. The dissociative boundary that characterizes life is becoming more porous, more permeable, and we pick up on experiences that are actually out there. They are not in us. We pick up a sense, a smell of what is surrounding us as it actually is in itself behind yeah. the dashboard. So yes, I think we can get those hints in life through psychedelics, meditation, and all that, but not with the crystal clear clarity of a transparent glass window. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And for um, listeners who haven't uh, heard a lot of your stuff, when you talk about um, the dissociative boundary, what you're talking about is um, the, the metaphor that you use, which I really like, is we've been calling it um, nature in this conversation, but say universal consciousness um, is a stream and we as individual conscious agents in, in the stream are, are like whirlpools and we are turned in on ourselves um, and that is the dissociation from the larger universal stream. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. you see, th th there's nothing to a whirlpool but the stream itself, right? You can't lift the whirlpool out of the stream, yet you can delineate it. You can point on here, here are the boundaries of the whirlpool. So it, it, it is a localized phenomenon although it's not separate from the stream at all. So I think that's what we are. We are just segments of nature, but our mentation, the stream of our experiences is localized because it turns in upon itself and forms a whirlpool. And we can point at each other and say, there he is, that's the boundary of his body, just like we can point at a whirlpool and say, there's the whirlpool. These mm -hmm. are the boundaries of the whirlpool. Um, and yet there's nothing to us, but this universal mind in exactly the same way that there is nothing to the whirlpool, but the stream where it's whirlpooling them. I, I like that metaphor because I feel like it works on a, a lot of levels. And I had um, uh, some thoughts actually about um, that not so long ago that um, I'll, I'll share with you now. I, I kind of, so I'm thinking of a stream and I'm thinking of whirlpools in the stream and, and I kind of, I'm, I'm thinking about um, say two people conceiving a, a one person, two people conceiving a child, but and, and a child being birthed, and and, and like a, a smaller whirlpool almost coming out um, from an existing one, and then also, um, you know, whirlpools or at least ripples can can overlap, and and I um, think well, that's an interesting way to think about connecting with other people and and, and influences. So, like you and I right now, our whirlpools are slightly overlapping, we're, we're connected in some way. And then also um, the influence that uh, people have. So people will listen to this and then our whirlpools are overlapping with them perhaps at that moment as well. Um, and then, yeah, and certain whirlpools have, have very, you know, wide influence and um, say, um, to be a little bit political, so, say Donald Trump, like that's a that's a big whirlpool that that affects a lot of other whirlpools, and you feel it. And then, <laughs> and um, and 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 then sometimes, kind of, we go, oh, this is like 
wow, the stream maybe feels a bit funny now with uh, these things going on and, and there's maybe a desire to, to settle things and, and have some calmness as well. So I don't know if you take it there, but I, I had fun thinking about your metaphor like that recently. I'm not going to contradict your uh, poetic understanding of the metaphor. <laughs> if I'm pressed against a wall, I would probably describe it differently. Uh, but you're appealing to intuition, to a feeling, not, ne not, not necessarily to the literal understanding of the word you said. So I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah, no, and look, I, 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 it's a, I, I know it's not what you say. It's, it's just a thought I had and, and a, a, you know, sort of going into it deeply, then suddenly it's like, well, that's kind of just, I'm using a 3D description to talk about a 3D world as well. So I, I don't know how well it stands up, but I, anyway, that's something I had fun with recently. <laughs> cool. Um, I, I know I've, wait, is that true? Let me check. Um, but no, I know I've sort of mentioned all the things that it was important to me to ask you about. I'm actually just checking to make sure that's true. Um, Oh, this is one I... Um, in, um, I, I said at the very beginning, I, I get a comfort from your philosophy and, and you also from philosophical idealism. And, and you said, yes, but I also I've heard you say, um, to paraphrase, and I, I have also had the same kind of thought, and this is a total paraphrasing of what you've said, so you can outright deny this or, or um, that basically I'm going to say it as like um, we're talking about the universe exploring itself and and um, if that's all it is like it, it must be it must be very lonely to be God um, is a way that I might put that but um, and I've heard you say things to that effect of like you've, you've said I, I hope that I'm wrong because if no, I don't remember your exact thing, but do you know what I'm talking about right now? And I have a sense. Uh, yeah. Look, I wouldn't say I hope that I'm wrong. I, I don't have that hope. Um, but I don't like the implications of what I'm putting forward, personally. I, I always try to put a brave face on it by saying that um, it recovers the dimension of meaning, which we have lost since... Uh, the beginning of the Enlightenment project. Um, and I do consider it very important. Um, but materialism or physicalism has a comforting aspect to it, uh, which is that at some point, all of your problems, fears, anxieties, depression, it will come to an end. You mm. will be dead. Mm. And that's the end of experience, including mm. all the bad experience. Yeah. It's the end of anxiety, regret, you know, all, all that stuff. And with idealism, that's no longer the case. Uh, that's so right. there is a potential for you to continue to torture yourself. Uh, and then Swedenborg, that, that, that was his description of hell. Uh, in Sweden, Swedenborgian hell is not a hell you are condemned to. It's the hell you condemn yourself to and you can't help yourself. And you see this in life, people who torture themselves through depression, through anxiety, you know, rumination, and you know, existential loops of anxiety. I know, I know that. I have plenty of experience torturing myself years on end. And um, under idealism, it, it, it's unclear 
whether that can or cannot continue. For all I know, it can continue. And then there's another thing that I personally have, I'm afraid of, and I call it the, the vertigo of eternity. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to describe it other than to just say the vertigo of eternity. It is vertiginous. Um, uh, take vertigo from looking down from the highest building on earth and then multiply that by a few million and you may get (laughs) what I mean by the vertigo of eternity, which I have experienced a couple of times. And my instinctive reaction was, oh, no, 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 no. That I really do not want. I want nothing to do with that. You know, keep me away from that, please. So like I told you, um, it's not my natural self to do what I'm doing. Sorry, it's not my natural ego self to do what I'm doing. It is my diamond, my true natural self. Uh-huh. Um, and despite I, my, my being convinced that idealism rejects the dimension of meaning to the world, which I think is the most important thing to recover, it's worth the price of bringing back the greatest fear in the history of mankind, which was, what are we going to experience after we die? Mm -hmm. This has historically been the greatest fear of mankind. I mean, in Europe, the entire evolution of European society through the Dark Ages was guided by this fear. The church would tell you whether you're going to go to hell or to heaven. And the whole of society would be controlled by that. The the greatest fear, even Aboriginal cultures, uh, uh, um, they talk about, you know, what are we going to experience after we die? And materialism has sort of taken that off the table for a couple of centuries. And we do not realize how comforting and reassuring that is, that you do not need anymore to lead life thinking about whether you are setting yourself up for self-torture for for eternity afterwards Um, and and that's very comforting so i i think losing this reassurance is a price worth paying for recovering meaning Mm -hmm. that said i i really liked that reassurance Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, it was very reassuring what what do you think of um uh, kind of, I guess the Buddha's answer to that um, terrifying vertigo, like in Buddhism, it is, uh, I don't, it's, this is, doesn't sound exactly the same as what you're talking about, but um, there's the wheel of rebirth um, and that there is the option, I guess, for an, uh, uh, not, not a universal mind, but, but for an individual consciousness to at least complete. What did, what did, you mean to reincarnate? No, to, to stop reincarnating. That, that oh. was kind of, yeah, yeah, to go, all right, I'm, I'm finished, I guess. Um, that, that doesn't answer it for God, but as, uh, what do you think of that as a thought? You know, if, if at the end, death means the, the actual end of all dissociative levels, and there isn't a meta-dissociative level that we fall back to when we die. In other words, if death is the end of individual agency and we become, again, this one mind at large, this one universal consciousness, I don't think that universal consciousness is in a state of bliss because I think what we call 
the physical universe, the stars, galaxies, you know, everything that's out there, I think it is the dashboard image of the inner life, inner conscious life of this universal mind. And the universe is not static. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. in it's in, in constant revolution, you know, supernovae exploding, black holes swallowing up entire galaxies. So if that gives us a hint of what God is feeling to, to say to say uh-huh. metaphorically, I don't think God is comfortable and content. So <laughs> so even if you don't reincarnate, even if there is such a thing as reincarnation, which I, I don't I don't take it literally at least. Um, but even if there isn't such a thing at all, and you just go back to that state of oneness, I don't think that's necessarily blissful. <laughs> no. Otherwise, if the universe were content, it would be doing nothing. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah that, that all makes sense. I, I guess, um, like, the Buddha sort of said, all right, there is a, a pathway out of, and, and talking about the cycle of rebirth, but it's, it's talking about suffering and... and um, I don't know. I, the, the two um, philosophies don't exactly overlap, so I, I don't know if I can bring that answer in there. But do you know what I'm talking about? It like the, the, the yeah. Buddha, yeah, yeah. Like, does that does that fit into um, your worldview and your your thinking at all? The notion that there's a possibility for um, relief peace. from suffering. Yeah, peace. Peace is the word. Yeah. There is a possibility for temporary peace here. I've experienced mm-hmm. it. Um, so I don't doubt there is a possibility for that in whatever other state of consciousness we might find ourselves uh, after we die, after the end of dissociation. Whether that is something that can be considered eternal and guaranteed, I'm, I'm not sure. But Buddhism is a lot more sophisticated than any Western philosophical formulation. Buddhism and, and Hinduism they have three and a half thousand, well, Hinduism, three and a half thousand years of tradition, Buddhism, two and a half thousand years of tradition. And Christianity just got its true bearings uh, in the form that we know it today, late in the first millennium. I mean, it's not 2000 years old. Uh, I mean, mm. Jesus supposedly lived 2000 years ago, but Christianity as we know it today took at least 350 years after that to, to start resembling what it is today. And arguably, only, uh, only after the Middle Ages, it sort of really solidified itself, the Counter-Reformation and all that. Um, so I, I don't have the expectation that, um, that my story is as complete as Buddhism or Advaita Vedanta, it's, it's, it's bound not to be. You cannot compare something that we articulate in Western philosophy since Berkeley, you know, for the last couple of hundred years. Uh, we cannot expect that will be as complete and nuanced and subtle and accurate as what people in the Hindus Valley uh, discerned three and, a half, three and a half thousand years ago. So, they know better, they know more, and I will bow to them uh, when it comes to the question you just asked. I, I, I do not know how to answer this question. Um, I, just speaking then, and, and I, I said, um, listening to you speak then, I, I said the first time I heard you was that um, uh, sci festival, sci fi festival um, talk. And in that one, and I haven't heard you speak about this in, in a lot of other talks, I don't know. 
I, there must be hundreds and hundreds of interviews of yours out there. But um, that one you opened with a lot of Indigenous creation myths. Um, and I really liked how you laid it out in that way and went, there's, there's, there's a theme here. There's a, an idea that's been around for a long time among many peoples. Um, and yeah, kind of that of the dream of, of going into the dream. Um, yeah. I really like so that. I wrote a book on that more than an allegory is about that, but I, I hardly ever get interviewed about more than allegory. I think it, it goes too far for most people. Yeah. Uh, except for the psychedelic community. I mean, the psychedelic community is, is, is a unique community. It's, uh, I, I sort of let my guards all down when I am in a yeah. festival like uh, sci-fi because you do not know, sorry, you know you do not have to defend yourself against certain you know, lines of argument and sure. stuff. Really just let it go, you know, you just yeah. say, say the way it is and people will tune into that. Um, but it's a very unique situation, a festival like that. Uh, it doesn't happen every day. Um, certainly with the pandemic, uh, that kind of festival is, is nearly impossible because, you know, People are physically very close all the time in a festival like that. Um, and people don't, don't interview me on, on that. Uh, they, sure. I had a few interviews when the book came out, More Than Allegory, in 2016. Uh, but now what people really want is my hard-nosed, hardcore yeah. argument from a purely scientific analytic perspective. Yeah. That's what sure. the society seems to be craving, which is not surprising, uh, Chris, that this is a hump that the psychedelic community has gone over already. If you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, it's old news for them. We, sure. we don't need reassurance to go over that hump in that community. It's like, yeah, yeah, we know that. Now, what are the implications now? Let's, let's talk about the real important stuff now. Uh, but for the culture at large, we are nowhere near going over that hump. We are still sort of trying to muster our energy to jump over it. So that's what people want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like. I think there's there's kind of a there's a there's a church of science, and and that's kind of um, Newtonian science, really. And and it's and and other strange ideas, just like any one claiming a religion. Um, it's very different for for different people. But um, yeah, you do need to have kind of this rational academic language to be taken seriously. I guess is the you need to speak uh, the values of the Enlightenment project. And, yes. and I'll be very sincere with you right now. Although I think they are limited, that's how I think I am that. You know, uh, uh, limited as it may be, it comes so absolutely natural to me. And when those values are violated, in other words, when we violate internal logical consistency, coherence, uh, conceptual parsimony, empirical adequacy, you know, all of this good stuff, uh, it uh, when it's violated, I go like, oh, no, yeah. that's not right. For sure. Um, so it's very easy for me to sort of surrender to that because it comes naturally. The, uh, and look, I, I agree, and I, I think very much the same way. And I, um, but I, there's a very big distinction for me between the scientific process, which I think is so incredibly valuable, and then what often gets called science, which is um, not really that different from a religion. It's a collection of ideas wow. that are dogmatic. Um. Science, is, science is done by people um, and, and people are imperfect. And uh, I, I'll just drop one more comment on this. Uh, you will not hear from the true 
hard-working scientists laboring away in laboratories to improve our lives, to help us live longer and solve problems like climate change and, and the pandemic. They are too busy doing science to go out and do the rounds of the talk shows and, and, mm. and talk about you know, the great thing that science is and how it mm. uh, tells you that uh, all the rest is bullshit. The people who do the rounds and the talk shows are not scientists. They are self-identified uh, science spokespeople. Sure. And often they don't do any science at all, or if they do, they are not doing leading edge science. They are not on the frontiers of it. Often yeah. they are just teachers, you know, and they spend all their extra time, which where you would expect them to be doing research. They spend their extra extra time talking about stuff that sure. that is in the meantime outdated or uh, uh, unsupported by the latest evidence. And we we even create formal ways to let people do that. Like uh, uh, Richard Dawkins is uh, chair of science communication or something. I mean, he's not a biologist. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they found a way to pay him a salary so he can go around and do the, the talk shows and, and choose easy targets to, to wipe the floor with, like uh, religious nuts. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you shouldn't judge science uh, based on these clowns. Uh, uh, you should judge science on the basis of people that unfortunately we don't get to see because sure. they are laboring away in these laboratories, doing the real thing uh, and talking in conferences that uh, we do not get access to. And even if we did, we wouldn't understand because they speak jargon. Otherwise, it would take five times as long to convey a message if yes. they would not use jargon. Yeah. So it's, it, we would don't judge science on, on the basis of the clowns you see. That, that, that would be my message. <laughs> I like that response very much. Um, and, and look, I feel I, I need to ask you about more than allegory then too. Um, so the, the question that I would have would be based on those, um, you know, recognising a, a pattern in creation myths. Would you, and this is a very Hindu belief actually, would you believe that there was like going a long way back in history, human beings had insights into the nature of reality that were more accurate than what most of us are walking around with now? Yeah, they were more connected to the roots of their being because you see, we are not separate from reality. We are part of it. We are rooted in reality. Um, reality isn't fragile. Um, what gets us confused are our internal conceptual narratives, what we tell ourselves regarding what reality is. And it got extraordinarily more confusing once we developed the concept of uh, a literal truth mm -hmm. or a literal statement of the truth. Um, because in the old times, everything was metaphorical. Communication yeah, right. was metaphorical. Yeah, yeah, if, you, yeah. if, if you ask um, a Witoto Indian in the Amazon, who happens to be able to speak Spanish, if you ask them, uh, but do you mean, what do you mean by this? Are you saying something metaphorical or literal? They get confused, like there is no difference. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because the, the most accurate way to speak the truth is through metaphor, yes. through analogy through a sort of cognitive resonance as opposed to dissonance. So they don't have this notion that um, something articulated in concept 
can be the literal truth. Truth, of course not. It's just concept. It's and abstraction. Uh, that that makes sense to me on two levels too. When you say um, the concept of literal is 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 this barrier. Like on the one hand, um, everything as human beings, like our reality and our meaning and, and everything is is done through stories. It's 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 narratives that we have that let us have a world that's constructive things and people and um and then on another level um i think you know if this is this is all a dashboard um this dashboard is all a metaphor for what is underneath too yeah and yeah a set um, of symbols yeah yeah so if you see a gauge on the on an airplane dashboard and it's eating, indicating air pressure outside you don't think that air pressure is the gauge yeah. No, it's pointing to the real thing outside the airplane. The same go for religious myths the world over. They were meant to be pointers, indicators. Um, and, and, and people didn't bother explaining this because, of course, that's what they are meant for. What else could they be meant yeah. for? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Uh, uh, there wasn't such a notion that the truth is a conceptual narrative. No, the truth is an experience. So uh, the myths were meant to sort of be conducive to the direct experience of the truth. In other words, the myths are the finger pointing. Mm -hmm. So what you, when you hear a myth, you have to follow the finger and look at where the finger is pointing in your inner experience. That's what the myth is for. But uh, in the West, for a few hundred years now, we've developed this notion that the finger has to be the truth. So we keep looking at it. Yeah. And we keep on you know, making the finger more sophisticated in the hope that that will be isomorphic with the truth. Yeah. But no finger can ever be isomorphic with the world around, yeah. the real truth of what's going on. I sometimes have, um, I don't know if inside is the right word, but I, 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 I feel the notion that, um, say, in a work setting or, or something like that, like the, the whole work the, the job that i'm doing and the way we're coming together and the things we're doing is really just um it's kind of a farce and really what we're doing is we're, and yeah and we're just connecting we're just like it's just a fun way to to bump together as human beings but we, yeah. we create this very elaborate oh I'm, conceptual narratives yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's uh, it, that's when we overcome this um there is a sense in which we will be in the same place as our ancestors once were. But we will be in that place knowing what, is what it is like to not be in that place. So yeah. it will we will be actually ahead. Yeah. Um, we will see through the conceptual narratives because we live in a culture in which we expect the truth to be a conceptual narrative. We want the truth to be told as opposed to be felt mm. and experienced. Mm. Um, and that would have been so absurd for our ancestors that it wouldn't get through their heads. They wouldn't yeah. compute this. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just, what are these guys talking about? I mean, yeah. they're completely crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I listened to a good podcast just yesterday, actually, and it was talking about um, ownership and just ownership is the better story that, that people have. And, and uh, I'm not going to, let me see if I can just flesh it out a tiny bit. Um, I won't do it proper justice, but, but, but really just saying, they used a, an example of um, on an airplane and when you recline your seat, um, 
who owns that wedge of space um, where the person in front is leaning back and the person behind has got their, their knees underneath it. Um, and it's saying, well, there's two stories there. One is, um, this is my space here in front of me. I'm, I'm sitting here. And then the, there's another story that says, well, this is attached to me. I have the control to go and do that. Um, and the, the point that this podcast makes very well um, is that ownership is just stories that we tell. And ownership is just a, a, a good example of something that we as Westerners and kind of most of the world just take as absolutely for granted, um, oblivious to the fact that it's a complete story. That, that we make. Yeah, right. yeah. Ownership, why stop there? Money is a story. Oh yes, yeah, money yeah. is a good one. Money yeah. is a number in a computer on a bank. You know, it's a story. Um, Time is largely a story, passes fast, passes slow, depending on your activity. Oh yeah, there is a number on a clock. It's a story. Yeah. It's not an experience. A linear time flowing at constant speed is a story. There's so many other stories. What we tell ourselves about what we are is a story. Oh, I am yes. a person who was born on that day and I do this and I'm married to that other person. Is that what you are? Yeah. <laughs> of course not. Because if, if, if you became amnesic tomorrow, completely amnesic, you would still be yourself, but all those stories wouldn't be there anymore. Mm, mm. So we lead stories now. We are so bloody disconnected from reality. Yeah. And, and, and the saddest part of it is that we do not have even the faintest idea how disconnected we are. Yeah. What's the remedy for it, do you think? I'm not even sure it isn't natural. It's probably just nature doing its thing. It's a phase one has to go through. Um, the only surefire remedy about it is for it is tragedy. The is only thing, tragedy. Tragedy. Because yeah, sorry you're, about you're, you're brought back to what's real then when confronted. It's the, yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, it, your bullshit only ends when something so severe happens in your world, so significant to you, that it stops you on your tracks and it makes you rethink your own narratives. Yeah. Um, tragedy and suffering are the only sure fire things to stop the bullshit. Uh, if you go back to myths, what was the role of the devil and the demons? It was to confront you with your bullshit. Mm. It was to confront you with your... Um, um, hypocrisy sure sure to put a mirror and reveal your <coughs> shadow to yourself all those things that you detest in other people and show you oh look they are all in you sure yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and but what is the devil what what is demons suffering it's yeah. torture it's suffering and that's what they do it uh, um i certainly agree that tragedy does that you, you see that so often um but is it the only way? I, I, um, I don't know. That, that is a depressing thought to think. Uh. <laughs> it may not be the only way, well, but it's a very obvious and surefire sure, way. Sure, sure, yeah. No, I, I know I don't like that um, suggestion that it might be the only way because that suggests that we have no agency in exploring 
discovering as but that's well. the thing it's individual agency and individual control are the greatest illusions and the whole oh. illusion of conceptual narratives are meant to feed the fantasy of individual control and individual agency we do not have individual control we are not individual agents you don't choose your next thought you cannot on the drop of a dime stop your obsessions and stop your depression or stop your anxiety you don't get to choose any of these things you don't choose what you like and what you dislike your wills and 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 your uh, uh, fears uh, are are given to you you don't choose them you don't choose the person you fall in love with uh, you don't choose your profession if you think you you did you chose wrong <laughs> well um, so, Okay, I, I'm interested to just unpick that a little bit um, because I, I wouldn't think that you were saying there is no such thing as free will. Individual free will? I think I'm saying that. Wow, yeah, okay. Because I don't think the individual is there. There isn't the thing there that is supposed to have free will, if you know what so, I mean. Okay, okay. So how does that tie into what you were saying before about um, uh, I feel compelled to, you know, speak speak the truth about um, exactly. That's precisely and, the expression of my lack of free will. So, but, you're, but you do not do you, Bernardo, not have the choice as to whether you do it. Now, if you don't, you, you feel suffering, um, but you get to choose that suffering, right? I don't think we can speak in terms of absolutes here. So let me try a metaphor. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think our individual agency, if there is such a thing at all, it's restricted to the executive ego, which is a tiny piece and part of our personal minds. There is a lot more going on in our minds and our, our traumas, our repressed uh, 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 memories, uh, uh, our shadow, the character traits that we don't recognize in ourselves, all that stuff, our real feelings, how we really feel about things, all that stuff that's not in the executive ego is still part of our personal selves. So, the image is the following. The executive ego is a tiny little rowboat in the middle of the Pacific during the mightiest storm that has ever happened on this planet. And the guy rowing on that little boat, can he try to go in a certain direction? You can try, you can row, go ahead, sweat yourself out. But there are much bigger forces at play. There is the wind, there are the okay. currents, there is the rain. Uh, you are at the mercy of forces that are not in your executive ego. Can you exert some influence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you will not end up where you want to end, if you know sure. what I mean, because sure. there are all these bigger forces at will. You probably can choose your mortgage package or the best way to work in the morning, but that's about it. Okay, okay. Cool. Yeah, no, because I, I wish I'd um, checked out and written down the name of this only recently came across it and it was something that I was going to ask you about, but it, um, it had quite a cute term, but the philosophy was essentially that, you know, life is, everything is deterministic. Um, uh, I wish I could, I wish I'd made a note and written that down. Yeah. Um, you, you, which is not what I hear you saying at all, and which is something that I like about philosophical idealism, that, that, that mind is real and primary. Um, it, it, I feel like that allows that. That allows a notion that this is, you know, it's, it's, it's not all a machine that's just doing its thing that we're... Well, I think you hit on the, the important point because our understanding of determinism goes beyond just to say that things are determined. Uh, what we understand by determinism is 
not only are things determined, but they are determined by something that is not mental, that's not consciousness, mm. that's not mind. That's what we mean by determinism. So this second leg, you can cross out and throw away. There is nothing beyond mind. There is mind beyond your own mind, mm -hmm. your personal mind. There is mind in your personal self beyond your executive <laughs> ego, which is the part of yourself that you identify with, but it's all mind. So whatever mind does, it's not determined by a force that is behind, beyond, mm -hmm. or independent mm -hmm. of mind. Having said that, you are still left with some form of determination because what mind does isn't random. When you make a choice, the choice is not throwing a coin. That choice is determined by how you feel, by what you mm -hmm. want, by mm -hmm. what you're afraid of. It's determined by aspects of your mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, there, it, it's still determined. It's just not determined by something that is not mind. Yeah. Um, but within the sphere of the mental, it may very well be, and I think the vast majority of what we do is determined by parts even of our personal minds that we don't identify with. Uh, sure. uh, uh, the, the therapy room is filled with people every day trying to become aware of why they actually made the choices oh, they totally. made. Totally, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, cool. So yeah. In, that, in that sense, I think the executive ego is a tiny little boat. You can choose the direction you're rowing, but it, it, you are not going to get where you want because there are much bigger forces at play, many of them personal and many of them impersonal, mm -hmm. transpersonal. Mm -hmm. um, and when I told you that, um, you know, uh, I, don't, uh, I do what I do because that's what nature wants to do through me, that's what I'm alluding to. My choices right. are determined not by Bernardo Castro, the ego, but by this much broader stormy ocean that wants me to go in a certain direction. Now, I can choose to row against that, but I will still end up in the same place. Yeah. So my choice was I will not row against <clears throat> it. Whatever the winds blowing and the currents are dragging me, I row along and I get there faster. And, and you don't get sick. Yeah, I don't get seasick. I don't get muscle ache. Know what I mean? That's yeah, what I yeah. meant. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. That makes that makes perfect sense to me. And, it, look, look uh, uh, Chris, I think it's very important that we overcome this fantasy that the ego is a controlling agent of what's happening in the world. It it's not. And all this new age story about the universe being a menu and you get to choose what you want. And it's trying to invest you with control. In the US, this is big. People are saying, you can be who you want. You know, you, you yeah, yeah. set the course of your life. Well, it would be great or maybe not, but it's not real. It's not realistic. That's not what's happening. And I think the only way out of the catastrophe that's looming is if we become cognizant of this reality before nature forces us to become cognizant of it because and that's what i mean by tragedy and suffering because unfortunately mm. that's the only surefire way to confront you with your own bullshit and say look let me show you how much bullshit it is that mm. you think you are a little god your little executive ego is a little god that gets to choose the direction of where things are going that you have control over yourself let me show you let me give you some cancer now Mm -hmm. uh, mm. No, I mean, and that was a realization I had when I was 34 and I was on top of the world. I was the youngest director in a Europe top, top 50 company. And I thought, I'm there. 
I, I, I control my life now. I have a beautiful house, money in the bank. I'm married to my uh, uh, youth, uh, youth sweetheart. I have a nice car. I'm there. And then, no, you're not in control of anything. The, the carpet uh, or the rug can be pulled from under your feet with one phone call. Mm. Your life can come crumbling down. So it, you're not in control, even if you think you are because your life has been going along the way your executive ego chose it to be. Well, it just happens and the circumstances sometimes are such that uh, it goes along the way you want it to go, but it's, it's not going that way because you wanted mm. it to go that way. Mm -hmm. It's just that the broader circumstances allowed for that to happen. But that illusion can be made clear to you as an illusion from one day to the, to the other. And what we will call it, we will call it a major life tragedy, mm. a major thing that will mm. completely crumble your world. And unfortunately, often it's the only way because we, we don't listen to the, to the subtlest signals. We, yeah. we don't listen when there is just a voice saying, ah, it's not quite what's mm. going on. Or pay attention mm. to this. And we don't. And then, you know, nature at some point will do that. I hope we learn before it. Sorry for the negativity. No, not at all. No, no, no. I love it. Did, did you want to, I, I won't ask if you did, did you want to share um, what your life tragedy was at 35? Or, or not? Oh, I, I, luckily, I was listening. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it didn't need to be a tragedy. My wife then, I found a, a nodule in her breast. And it took um, two weeks for the doctors to confirm that uh, it was nothing dangerous. But during those two weeks, I lived with the reality that she might sure. have something very serious and I, might, and I might lose her. And it was a false alarm of two weeks, but uh, I was paying attention. Yeah. Um, and that was enough to, for me to engage into a 10-year-long process of letting go of this illusion that I am in control. I'm not yeah. in control. I have yeah. never been in control. Neither will I ever be. Uh, the executive ego is a tool of nature. Uh, because you need an executive ego to know in which mouth to put the food. You <laughs> know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you, you need some, some kind of self-identification in order to yeah. function. Yeah. But it's a tool. It's not an agent. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it is not in control. It's, mm -hmm. uh, nature is using it. And nature is a mind. So in, 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 in a way, it, it's a great honor. It's a great service uh, to provide to something infinite and eternal. So there is positivity in that as well, but we need to tune in to the true positivity as opposed to the delusional positivity of <laughs> the ego is in control. It's not, has never been, and will never be. Um, and it's a matter of time until you realize that. For some people, they realize that uh, two minutes before they actually die, mm. because then they realize this is it. Mm -hmm. you know, th this, this is it. it, it I, I, I cannot do anything about this. I'm not in control. I'm going to lose everything that I identify myself with and that I care about. Yeah. And I will be toast. So it, it will happen. It's a matter of when in your life it will happen. Um, I, I'll, I'll um, finish, finish up um, soon, but I've got a few little questions that I wanted to ask sure, that, sure. That, that have popped into my brain as we've been talking. And one was just now, um, is your wife um, very supportive of your work? What's, um, how, how does it, I don't know, how, how does your family life and your work 
come together. So the, my wife then is no longer my wife. She's still a very close friend. Uh, uh, I, I, I live together with a girlfriend. Uh, we are life partners. We are not formally married, but it's the same as if we were okay. uh, for now eight years. Okay. Yeah, a little over eight years. She's incredibly supportive. Yeah. She's unconditionally cool. supportive. Yeah. Cool. That, that is actually what I wanted to ask of just like, cause I wasn't aware of your being in a relationship. There's no reason I would be, but um, yeah, actually in, in reflecting, sorry, total aside, but in reflecting on getting to talk to you and, and you having a celebrity status for me, at least I realized I wasn't um, actually very nervous. And I realized that was because I've seen you speak so many times as a familiarity on my side. Um, Another thing that I wanted to ask about, and this is, um, is uh, which, did you watch one of my podcasts then? Or, or did I you just did. check? I, yeah, which I one? I did check it out. No, I don't remember. Okay. Uh, I don't remember because it was a while ago that, uh, that you said. That's true. That's true. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't remember because I have to watch and read so much stuff every sure. day. Uh, but whatever it was, I thought, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have accepted your 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 invitation. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then the, the final one is um, just: uh, Would you agree with um, going back to Donald Hoffman? And uh, this is a funny thing to finish on, but I just um, I, I don't think I asked this explicitly before. But one of his conclusions, which I just find very intriguing, is um, the the dashboard view whatever that we have is not a reflection of reality and that includes for him space and time would you agree with of that course. absolutely yeah, of course it's a, it's an inevitable yeah. implication okay. of the whole line yeah. of thought yeah. space and time are the dimensions of the dial yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, the 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 path that the needles follow inside yeah. the dials yeah so this this circular dimension is space for instance uh, it's the paradigm of the dashboard. It's not the paradigm of the world as it is in itself. We, we sort of have known this in the West, at least since Kant, who said space and time are modes of cognition. They are not a objective scaffolding of the world out there as it is in itself. They are not part of the noumena. Uh, they are part of the phenomena, the inner representations. Yeah, yeah, cool. That one, it, um, I, I, it's interesting but it's certainly not an intuitive um idea for me i i need to like it it makes sense but it's not something that yeah space and time feel so very real um oh yeah, yeah. sometimes yeah yeah, but, uh, yeah. You, you i take it that you've you've had psychedelic trips real psychedelic trips not the um, little low dose uh no i haven't real i mean i i have um but I don't know. I've, I've certainly had interesting, like I have had psychedelics and I have had trips, but not kind of as profound as what I hear about, um, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, that trip can decimate space-time. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you are in a mode of cognition. It doesn't matter uh, to say, oh, it's a drug. Well, we are on drugs right now. Neurotransmitters are drugs. Psychedelics yeah. are analogous to neurotransmitters, just a different kind of drug. We are always on, drug, uh, on drugs. Yeah. Uh, but even if you say, oh, you're on drugs or it's an illusion, what it does prove is that there is a configuration of consciousness in which the idea of space-time is not present. Yeah. 
I, whether it's illusion or not doesn't matter. There is a state of consciousness in which the idea of linear time and space yeah. is not present. That's not how it operates. Yeah. And it's inevitable. Nobody can come back and tell you exactly how it is because language is a space-time thing. I actually, I, um, once in Thailand, I, I had um, like uh, quite, quite a big trip and I have notes from it. I have they're these little, it's a stack of flyers from the, the bar that I was in. And they're just over and over again saying, there's another place. I need to remember there's another place and there's a place outside. Yeah, so there was this experience of um, not, not being here in this world, in this body. Um, but yeah, that was the best I could bring back. Um, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, Bernardo, I, I, I think I'll, I'll finish up right there. Hey, it's such a, a pleasure, such a special thing for me to get to talk to you. And so thank you so much for agreeing and coming on. Yeah, it was fun. My pleasure. <laughs> cool. Um, is there anything that you would like to add or, or finish on? Uh, I, I, I normally don't do any self-promotion, but I would like to promote Essentia Foundation. Yes. So if you guys, if your audience is interested in uh, um, more details of what I've talked about, Essentia Foundation has a free online course. You don't even need to register. It's all on YouTube. Uh, if you go to essentiafoundation.org, you can follow the links there to our online course on idealism. Um, again, it's free, no registration. Just go and enjoy it. Fantastic. Cool. And actually, I think that's perfect. I'll include the link in um, the notes for the show. And yeah, anyone, if you've been at all interested in what we're talking about, that's probably uh, a fantastic place to learn all about it. All right. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I see it's a day for you. <laughs> the sun has come out. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. I need to get home and get the children ready for school. And um, I guess you'll head off to bed shortly. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Chris, thanks a lot and take care. Have a good day. Thank you. Cheers. Hey, Chris. Uh, hello. Hey. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can hear and see you. Fantastic. Likewise. Oh, uh, hold on. Give me one moment. One moment. Okay, I'm back. I've learned from experience that if I wear something white, the image gets oversaturated. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Your experience with this. Is, yeah. um, thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan and it's a, a real, I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Glad to be here. Um, I, I'm sorry about the time mix up. I, I got up this morning and um, it, it was my mix-up. It was not yours. Okay. All right. Cool. I looked at the invite and it was indeed 10 p.m. on the 9th of June, but I had nine in my head and uh, I thought it was 9 p.m., but it's fine. Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Um, all right. Well, look, um, shall we, we'll just jump straight in. Let's do that. All right. So... <clears throat>